When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I am Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. I want to take a second, if we can here, just to take a step back for a moment. I, I really want us to understand what is happening across this country. And I know that as a nation, we've been talking about Roe v. Wade and the potential for it being overturned since, well, at least 1973. There's been so many challenges to it, so many decisions to try to have a right Supreme Court to be able to overturn it. And yet, sitting here today, and until now, it has remained the law of the land. But from Texas to Mississippi to now Oklahoma and frankly beyond, We've seen a lot of blueprints created and followed that will, and already have, upended a nearly 50-year precedent. But we have, after all, yet to see a final opinion from the Supreme Court. Now, I know there's a draft opinion, and it was leaked, and it purports to say that, yes, the writing is on the wall, and no one should be naive to the prospect that Roe v. Wade may, in fact, be overturned. And yet, Roe v. Wade, again, sitting here today is still supposed to be the law of the land until the Supreme Court officially says otherwise. But for some governors and abortion clinic operators, the leaked opinion was enough. It's given license to governors to try to anticipate that overturning Roe v. Wade, according to that opinion, will allow them to decide the issue. Remember, Alito wanted it to go back to the states. It's more than just overturning Roe v. Wade. It's about having the individual states be the one to decide how their state will operate. And because of it, some governors are now signing legislation accordingly or hoping to be able to soon. And for some abortion clinic operators, well, state abortion bans have made them stop providing the service entirely out of fear of being sued. Again, this is with Roe v. Wade still the law of the land. And these abortion care providers, along with many concerned Oklahomans, well, they're bracing for the impact of this looming ban on almost all abortions in the state. We're actually going to hear tonight from one of those providers whose clinic has stopped providing abortions even before the bill has even been signed. Well before, of course, even Roe v. Wade being overturned, if it in fact will be. Now, she says that some women that she's been talking to have become frantic. There's already an undoubtedly important impact on Oklahomans in a major way. You've got the Republican governor, Kevin Stitt, who is expected to sign this newly passed law at any time. And if he does, and when perhaps he does, there will be no law in the country like this. It'll outlaw abortions from the very moment of fertilization, with very few exceptions. And remember what happened in Texas. You'll be able to have a civilian enforcement component where you can be sued if you aid and abet or are suspected of helping somebody have an abortion. And this, all that I've talked about today, will likely take effect even while Roe v. Wade still stands, even though we know that long-settled law protecting abortion rights could, could be overturned by the Supreme Court. I have to tell you, I'm not naive, and I know you were not either. But as a lawyer, as a voter, as a human being, as a woman, as a person, 
I'm concerned about the effect of states getting ahead of their constitutional skis, so to speak. Let's expand beyond abortion in the context of the conversation to really understand why this moment is so impactful. What's the impact of states making laws if they're conservative or liberal? doesn't matter how the law leans and is perceived. But making a law that goes against Supreme Court precedent in the hopes that you will guess correctly what their opinion will one day be. The question then becomes, who's going to have the last say and who are the people to listen to? And if that's the question we're asking, doesn't that risk making the Supreme Court obsolete? And isn't that extraordinarily dangerous precedent as well? And speaking of precedent from the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court itself, you don't have to be a Supreme Court insider to know that there were probably some tensions happening around that leaked opinion. And there are tensions within the Supreme Court right now as the decision edges closer. I mean, it's kind of been out there for everyone to see with one of the justices who's had a, who has a long call for Roe to be overturned, Clarence Thomas, who's been throwing shade at his fellow conservative and the chief justice, John Roberts, who might actually be behind the scenes trying to work for a compromise to uphold Roe, at least for now. Listen closely here to what Justice Thomas said just the other day about what the high court was like before Chief Justice Roberts came to be in 2005 and the friendships of yesteryear before he was a part of the court. This is not the court of that era. The court that was together 11 years was a fabulous court. It was one you looked forward to being a part of. We actually trusted it. Was, we may have been a dysfunctional family, but we were a family. I think the what's changed in society, uh, modernity or post-modernity, uh, I think attitudes have changed. I have to wonder whether the rose-colored glasses are appropriate or whether it was really the facts of the cases and that was really the climate. Either way, someone's not getting invited to the party. We're going to dig much deeper into that path forward with CNN's Joan Biskupic and some of her fascinating new reporting on this very issue about these tensions. But first, to the looming Oklahoma ban on most abortions, again, from the moment of fertilization. Andrea Gallegos is the executive administrator of the Tulsa Women's Clinic and also runs another clinic in Texas. Both have stopped providing abortions for now, even in Oklahoma, where it hasn't even taken effect yet. Also here is Mark Heron, a senior litigator for Center for Reproductive Rights, and he represented abortion providers that were challenging Texas's restrictive anti-abortion law. I'm glad to have you both here on a night like this, and we are, in many respects, waiting to see what this sort of Damocles might mean. It's, it's a good one for people who are in favor of not having abortion. It's one, in fact, that would be the antithesis of freedom for those who are in favor of abortion rights. And I want to begin with you, Andrea, because as somebody who operates clinics, I mean, you have one in Texas and Oklahoma, you've actually told some of your patients, look, when Texas had its law, you can still go to Oklahoma. There's still another vehicle. This really cuts that off entirely. What has been the reaction for your patients and, of course, for yourself and your clinic? How are you responding? Uh, yes, thank you, Laura, for the question. So, um, you know, it's it's completely devastating to tell a patient that because of these blatantly unconstitutional laws that we can no longer provide the health care that um, they're seeking and that we're qualified to provide. Um, we've had patients that we've had to turn away um, minors, uh, rape survivors, 
Um, and, you know, because of Texas's law, SB8, we had to say, um, no, we can't help you here. Um, prior to any laws passing in Oklahoma, we were able to at least provide an option of sending them to Oklahoma. Um, Oklahoma was quite the sanctuary state um, for Texans for quite a while. We saw up to 300 patients uh, from Texas alone every wow. month um, up until, you know, uh, Oklahoma passed uh, 1503, which was the exact same copycat law of SB8 in Texas. And essentially- But it goes further, um, excuse me, Andrea, it goes further, and right, and the idea of at fertilization. Correct. So it's even really the combination of why it's so restricted. But I have to ask you, I mean, why have you stopped providing the services now? Um, I maybe understand Texas, but Oklahoma, it's not been signed into law yet. What is it that you are afraid of? Is it the idea of being sued? Is it the idea of this being codified in a way? What, what is the driving reason to stop before you even have a Supreme Court opinion or assign legislation? So um, first, uh, we haven't stopped in Texas. We still provide abortions up to... Um, detectable fetal cardiac activity. In Oklahoma, uh, we stopped um, as of today. Um, we're expecting the governor to sign a 4327 into law at any moment. Um, and so we decided to go ahead and, and stop um, just expecting that he will be signing. Mark, when you hear this, you know, the idea of the, the chilling effect, that's really the fear people have when you have the idea of trying to anticipate the Supreme Court. And again, the leaked opinion does purport to overturn Roe v. Wade. It might just be about what, the, what they will do with it and what the final language is. When you hear, though, that there are people who are already stopping providing services, particularly in, in Oklahoma, what goes through your mind? There are a whole lot of legal issues to consider here, and the idea that it's already a deterrent does that concern you? Of course it does. But just to back up a little bit, um, about three weeks ago, nearly three weeks ago on May 3rd, Oklahoma passed an SB8 style copycat bill that banned abortion uh, at beginning at six weeks. So for nearly three weeks, patients in both Texas and in Oklahoma have been unable to get abortions past six weeks. But that wasn't extreme enough. That wasn't cruel enough for the Oklahoma politicians who decided we need to pass a total ban. And the reason that clinics have had to stop providing is because there's an immediate effective date, which is nearly unheard of for legislation. But these legislators are, are deciding to pass the, the cruelest, the most, um, the most difficult law that they could possibly pass with an immediate effective date. Of course, it's a giant problem. And if the courts don't step in, my thoughts are with the patients all across Oklahoma and Texas now who Oklahoma patients were already backlogged for weeks because of the rush of patients coming from Texas and taking appointments in Oklahoma. Now patients in Texas and Oklahoma are going to have to travel hundreds, thousands of miles if they have the means to do so, if they have the ability to take time off work, secure childcare. Um, th this hurts low-income women marginalized communities. This is devastating for those communities. And that's where my thoughts are. And Andrea, to that point, and I, I absolutely understand I mean, the ramifications of what this means, and you're on the ground, and both of you have done this work and anticipated, frankly, the idea, the prospect of it. But what really strikes me is the idea, and you mentioned the idea of minors, people who are rape victims. 
There are exceptions that have been stated, at least codified on the paper. But I have to tell you, I, I keep wondering as a prosecutor, and I have prosecuted rape cases, and I always wonder, well, how are you supposed to litigate the matter fully? How do you prove that somebody has been a victim of a crime such as rape in order to get them in the exception? And then going one step further, if all the clinics have been closed, what good are the exceptions at all? Right. So I think it's also important to consider that while 4327, the total ban, does make exceptions for rape, the survivor has to be willing to report that rape first. That takes time. And then um, 1503 is still in place. So 1503 limits um, abortions after a fetal heart rate is detected. So if if um, a rape survivor decides that they're going to report and going to seek an abortion, if they are past the six-week limit, there's nothing they can do in Oklahoma. Um, so the exception to me is not um, it's it's not very much of one. Um, these laws, like Mark said, are um, incredibly cruel and uh, really hurting women right now all over the state. Andrea Gallegos, Mark Heron, thank you so much. What is most concerning and as well, when you go beyond the context of even abortion, I know that these clinics provide healthcare services as well. So the shutting of them being shutting down is not limited to abortion-related services. I can imagine people who are getting breast exams, who are getting pap smears, who are getting other services that are vital to a woman's body and health and what the consequences might be. Thank you to both of you. Thank you, Laura. And as I mentioned earlier, this abortion fight has a lot of people on edge. Even within the Supreme Court, we're all watching the Supreme Court to see what they will do and what they will ultimately decide to do about Roe v. Wade. And there is tension, apparently, flying between the two people on your screen right now, between Justice Clarence Thomas and the Chief Justice John Roberts. And we're going to go take a much deeper dive into exactly why there is the tension and unpack some pretty eye-popping news involving Justice Thomas's wife and her activism. Next. This is not the court of that era. Uh, I sat with Ruth Ginsburg for almost 30 years, and she was actually an easy colleague for me. You knew where she was, and she was a nice person to deal with. Sandra Day O'Connor, you can say the same thing. Hmm. But Justice Clarence Thomas couldn't say the same thing about Chief Justice John Roberts, nor the state of the court that's under him even suggesting at one point that there isn't much trust among his colleagues. The tension simmering within the high court only adds more uncertainty to the fate of Roe v. Wade. And, and we also know very well, Justice Thomas, this court is not like that of Ruth Bader Ginsburg by virtue of the fact that this is pending the way it is. But for more on this, Joan Biskupic, Supreme Court biographer and CNN legal analyst, joins me now. Joan, I'm glad you're here. You know, you've written many a book on the Supreme Court and know this court very well. I have to initially ask, is Justice Thomas right about the court of yesteryear and the sort of um, kumbaya moments that were there? Well, I can say that uh, Justice Thomas and others from that era had a higher level of trust. Uh, he, he said 
what has been simmering inside for, for many years. And I think it's telling that it would come out at this point. Two things, and they're both in the clips that you played, Laura. First of all, when he said, we actually trusted each other, as in now we don't. And then that more recent clip you just uh, played about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when he said, you knew where she was. What he was saying is she, she told us how she felt, how she was going to rule. And the implication is, and I know this is the case behind the scenes, that uh, they regard the chief as secretive and cagey, but it's been toward an end that has made John Roberts successful in other, at other times in brokering a compromise. Just think, Laura, of how close Clarence Thomas is right now to realizing his goal that he's had for three decades of reversal of Roe. The political draft that came out earlier this month suggested that there were five votes to completely overturn Roe v. Wade. Now, the draft was dated February 10th, mm -hmm. so many weeks <laughs> since yep. then, and there are still about five weeks more to go until you know we'll probably see the ruling, although it can come at any point, but I think yeah. this is likely to come at the end of June. And I think Clarence Thomas's very candid remarks that he has prided himself in not being so candid on mm -hmm. the relations behind the scenes reveal some of the tension there and could suggest that the chief is actually having some success in climbing that very steep hill of convincing either Brett Kavanaugh uh, and possibly Amy Coney Barrett that we can reverse Roe, but this is not the case for it. Laura, as you is that, know- Is that possible they, though? I mean, Joan, I, you, they, when you say that, I mean, I, sorry to excuse, uh, excuse me for a second. When you say that, um, the idea that Justice Amy Coney Barrett or Justice Brett Kavanaugh might be the ones to be persuadable in this context is striking for so many people across the country because the expectation during the confirmation hearings would be that these would be the two in particular who would side against the idea of upholding Roe v. Wade. Now, they have said, you know, stare decisis, who they were blue in the face and um, hedged their answers to confirm their, um, their confirmation, of course, as every justice who's a nominee does. But is it a possibility that those two could be persuaded? Is that what might be happening behind the scenes? Well, let me just say this, and I don't want to raise expectations because, you know, you've got five very hardcore conservatives who have yeah. been eager to reverse it. But let me just pose this possibility. I think the strongest card the chief has is the fact that when they granted this case uh, a year ago in May, they said they were only going to look at whether the Constitution uh, prohibits any kind of ban on pre-viability abortions. And you know what that means. It would mean any kind of uh, ban on abortions before about the 23rd week of pregnancy. This Mississippi law before the justices has a 15-week ban. And, you know, the one thing the chief could say, and that he likely is saying, is that, you know I oppose abortion rights. You know I think there's a problem with Roe, but this is not the case to do it in. And mm. if we're going to actually... And, and, you know, Laura, I want to make clear that uh, this, even even the very persuasive Chief Justice John Roberts might not be able to pull a rabbit out of a hat on this one. He might not get any uh, buy-in from someone like Brett Kavanaugh, who in the end, Laura, has always voted against abortion rights. So it, it might not happen and it's, the odds are against it. But I'm just saying there's a really strong possibility there. And the fact that Clarence Thomas wanted to complain about the chief so publicly last week, suggests that at least their, the tensions are high enough and he could possibly be thwarting Clarence's 
Thomas's yeah. goal of reversible growth. You're right, Joan. And of course, it could also mean that there is distrust because of conflicts of interest that are perceived in the court as well, even coming from the wife of Justice Clarence Thomas. But, you know, people who live in glass houses, you know, the end of the saying. Joan Biskupic, thank you, everyone. I appreciate it so much hearing from you in particular. Now, of course, to the war in Ukraine ahead. The first Russian put on trial for war crimes since this invasion began has now pleaded guilty. And what he said in court to the widow of the civilian he murdered and what this trial may foreshadow for many others to come is up next. So Russia now claims it holds the besieged steel plant in Mariupol, Ukraine. And CNN cannot independently confirm the Kremlin's assertion. But as you know, this plant has been the center of months of heavy fighting. And there's actually a new video that appears to show the few remaining Ukrainian fighters, look at this, walking out of the plant. So what happens to soldiers after the fight is very much at the center of this conflict. Look no further than a Kyiv courtroom just happening today. A 21-year-old Russian soldier stood trial in the first war crime case since Russia invaded. His name? Vadim Shishimirin and he pleaded guilty to shooting an unarmed 62-year-old civilian. I'm sorry, and I sincerely repent. I was nervous the moment it happened. I didn't want to kill, but it happened, and I do not deny it. Shishamiran's lawyer claims he was in, quote, a state of stress, unquote, due to the nature of combat and the pressure from his commander. Now, these proceedings are, are a bit unusual. We often don't see war crimes trials until many years after the atrocities. Robert Goldman knows the unique challenges of prosecuting war crimes, and he joins me now. Robert Goldman, I'm glad you're here. And what you've had to talk about in this instance, there's been a lot of questions about this war crime trial and about war crimes in general, not the least of which is, is it unusual to have one in the midst of the war still going on? Uh, yes, uh, Laura, highly unusual. As a matter of fact, with research that has been done, uh, I've only seen an example of one such trial uh, that occurred, I believe, in Bosnia in the uh, midst of the uh, wars with the breakup of the former Yugoslavia in the 1990s. Other than that, you're absolutely right. Uh, there generally have been ad hoc tribunals such as for the former Yugoslavia, Rwanda, the special chambers in Cambodia, that in many cases have taken place uh, years, if not decades, after uh, those hostilities, the wars are over. But the word tribunal really piques my curiosity here because we're not seeing like a military tribunal here. We're seeing a civilian court, civilian judges who were deciding this issue. That strikes me as a bit odd, given the greater scheme of international law governing war crimes, is it not? Yes, and, and you've hit on a very good point. Uh, the choice of forum and so forth is not something that is uh, left to the particular state. Uh, Russia and the Ukraine are, are parties to the uh, four Geneva Conventions, but specifically the third Geneva Convention, no, known as the Prisoner of War Convention, sets forth very detailed, specific rules governing not only the treatment, but trials and the kinds of courts in which prisoners of war uh, can be tried. 
Uh, you can well imagine uh, that uh, prisoners of war are in a terribly vulnerable position. I mean, they've been out on the battlefield. Uh, their job is to kill the enemy. And now they're captured by the enemy. And so the Geneva, uh, the third Geneva Convention expressly provides that prisoners of war solely should be tried by a military tribunal, subject to one exception. It's extremely narrow and precise, and that is if the existing law in the country, that is of the detaining power, in this case Ukraine, expressly provides that their own soldiers uh, would be tried by the same tribunal on the same charge, and that is something that would be quite surprising. Uh, Wait, I'm sorry. Do you mean? Do you control, mean? Excuse me. Do you yeah. mean that they would have to have in their yeah. laws in Ukraine that if one of their own soldiers were captured, say by Russia, that Russia must be able to have a civilian trial? Or you're saying they have to be tried within no. Ukraine as well? No. What I'm saying is that they would. In other words, what 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 the law says is that if they try, that is, Ukraine, could try their own soldier who committed in the course of armed conflict a war crime or charged with a war crime. If their local courts, their civilian courts, under the law as it existed and so forth at the time, they could try their own soldiers for that offense, then they could try uh, a prisoner of war, that is, an enemy combatant who is now a prisoner of war, in a civilian court. That is a very narrow exception. Robert, when you think about and where— And this the is fact because that you won't— Excuse yeah. me. When you, I, I, I want to follow that thread, but yeah. I also want to understand— for many people listening, you know, the idea of him being, he says that he was under the pressure of a commanding officer to do what he's done. I'll let everyone judge for themselves whether that is acceptable or not. But the idea of pursuing the charge against him versus a higher up, this is a lingering question for people over the course of history. The idea of whether to prosecute the one who followed the orders or the one who gave the order. Is that distinct here in the reasoning for well, why to pursue him? Well, look, the law envisions uh, that, that during armed <clears throat> conflict, all the parties should have command and control, and if war crimes are committed, they should punish their own troops. In the event that they don't do it, and there is evidence that uh, an enemy soldier who is now given prisoner of war status and so forth uh, has committed uh, that crime, uh, then you can lawfully bring those charges. The issue about higher-ups uh, is something that is being investigated presently uh, by uh, the International Criminal Court has some 40-plus uh, investigators. This is a problem, however, because Russia is not a party to the statute of the International right. Criminal Court, nor is Ukraine, but Ukraine has consented to the investigation. Mm. Uh, these are, however, what are known as crimes of universal jurisdiction, which means any state which is a party to the Geneva Conventions could try the soldiers or the higher-ups. But the reality is they're trying the individual right now, and he has to be accorded a fair and regular trial.
Robert Goldman, we're going to continue to lean on your expertise in this area, particularly given this person has pleaded guilty, but there are still others who may yet be tried. We'll see if those, um, those international rules are abided by and how. Thank you for your expertise. I appreciate it. Now to this thing you've been seeing in headlines. It's probably made you a little bit queasy and a little bit afraid. The monkeypox outbreak tonight reaches nearly a dozen countries, including this one. And the pictures, I'm not going to lie to you, they're not pleasant, and I hate to even look over there, knowing that's a small hand of a child. And of course, one global health official fears the spread could speed up this summer. So how much should we worry about this on top of everything else we're worrying about? And just from an expert, our next. Tonight, health officials in New York City are treating a patient with a, quote, presumptive positive, unquote, case of monkeypox. Now, if confirmed, it'd be the second case in this country with six others being still investigated. And today, the World Health Organization reported well over 100 confirmed or suspected cases in 11 different countries. So how concerned should Americans be? Joining me now is Dr. Peter Hotez, co-director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital. Dr. Hotez, I'm so used to talking to you about the COVID-19 vaccination and the pandemic that is still ongoing. And now we have to add monkeypox to it? Uh, I look at these pictures, this doesn't look pleasant and it looks extraordinarily painful as well. How nervous should we be here? Well, this is, uh, you can't really compare the two. This is, uh, in terms of orders of magnitude, less. Um, We are seeing now what we call multifocal outbreaks in multiple countries, meaning that historically we've seen transmission in Nigeria and Democratic Republic of Congo. What's unusual here is that there's been uh, transmission of of this monkeypox outside of uh, Nigeria in several different countries, and there's been ongoing transmission in several different countries. So we have 17 suspected or actual cases in Montreal. You've got around 20 cases in Spain, several cases in the UK, Sweden, and now Australia, and two cases in the US. So trying to understand how all that unfolded and what level of transmission is going on within these other new countries in Europe, Australia, and the, in, in the US is what's under active investigation right now. And you're right to distinguish it from COVID-19 in the sense of the, the fatality risk in particular of monkeypox. So we know to date, no one has actually died in the outbreak in comparison, of course, to COVID-19. But I'm, I'm not clear on what the symptoms are and how one would be alerted to it. Obviously, the apparent um, postules around the body would be a clear indication. But are there things that would predate during the incubation period, for example, that we should be aware of? Well, one of the big features is swollen lymph nodes uh, around the face. So swellings um, under the neck, uh, uh, under the chin, um, maybe under the shoulders, uh, the kind of lymph node swelling would be uh, potentially uh, a tip-off. And the fact that there is a characteristic rash, I know it sounds kind of strange, but in some ways that's a blessing in terms of being able to trace all of the contacts just the opposite of COVID-19, right? You have up to 40% of the cases without any symptoms at all. It makes contact tracing a nightmare. Here with with 
with monkeypox, any new case that you have, you can readily detect it, identify all of the contacts, and either isolate them or vaccinate them or treat treat them. And the fact that monkeypox is far, far less transmissible uh, than COVID-19, certainly in its current form, all of those things uh, add up to the fact that it's unlikely you're, we're going to see anything near the level of transmission that we and, and the level of cases that we've seen for COVID-19. So hopefully so, this can be self-limited between a combination of contact tracing and or vaccination. So how do you treat it? I mean, are the vaccines that are in existence right now, you said you could you could treat through a vaccination. Obviously, we've thought about vaccines as not necessarily stopping the infection at, t- at times with COVID-19, for example, but being able to reduce the severity of it at times. Is, the, is there a vaccine out right now for monkeypox or is well, there an well, existing there's, there's one that, that has... There's actually a couple of options. One, they're actually antiviral drugs that were okay. developed for smallpox. Remember, all and there are at least two or three vaccines. The reason we have them was not for monkeypox. Uh, back in the 2000s, when BARDA was started, the whole idea was we were quite worried that um, from the old USSR, there were uh, bio, there, there were bioterrorist and biowarfare uh, laboratories that were weaponizing smallpox. So that's when BARDA was started to stockpile. Uh, smallpox vaccines and 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 stockpile smallpox treatments, and those seem to cross over relatively well towards uh, monkeypox. So there are at least three vaccines. One's the old smallpox vaccine, which is a live replicating virus vaccine. There's a newer one that's non-replicating, and that may be important, especially in anyone who has co-infection with HIV. You you definitely want to use that non-replicating vaccine. And then we have a couple of antiviral treatments. So. So all of those things add up to the fact that we have an already an armamentarium of drugs and vaccines ready mm. to go from the get-go. We have um, w- ways to identify patients, isolate patients, do the contact tracing. All of those stack the deck in terms of being able to limit um, the spread of this, especially in countries that have well-functioning health systems, such as in Western sure. Europe and Australia and the U.S. and Canada. Well, thank you for that silver lining that there is some ability to treat and perhaps we contain. Dr. Peter Hotez, thank you so much. The next big election and referendum on Donald Trump is days away in Georgia. So can the Republican who beat Stacey Abrams for governor win the nomination again after standing up to Donald Trump? I'm talking about Brian Kemp, that is. Is Trump effectively abandoning his pick? And what happens if there's a rematch from four years ago? at the governor's race. Insight on the days ahead, next. Georgia's Republican gubernatorial primary will headline another big election day next week, this coming Tuesday. And the latest polls are showing that Donald Trump's pick, David Perdue, way down and the gap only widening. So what's it mean if this key state winds up looking a lot like a repeat of the 2018 governor's race between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams? With me now, CNN political commentator Ashley Allison, the former Nationalist Coalition director for the Biden-Harris campaign and an Obama White House staffer. Also CNN political commentator, Washington corporate lobbyist and former Trump campaign senior advisor, (laughs) David Urban. Can you guys have longer titles, please, for me to talk about right now? I had a whole thing on monkeypox. I don't want to read any more things in the prompter. Thank you very much. I'm still scratching. Listen, welcome back. I'm glad you're both here. I have to ask you about what's going on with Georgia and the race coming up because, David, as you know, it was personal for Trump. I mean, he has invested a lot in the Georgia races and his man is down. What do you make of it? 
Yeah, very much so. Laura, listen, it's very interesting, right? So the president, if you could pick one, one, one politician across the United States that Donald Trump went at with, with both barrels, full, full Donald Trump, full MAGA, it was, it was Brian Kemp in Georgia. And, um, and it, and it kind of just bounced off. Kemp is, Kemp is up by 30 points and it looks, looks by all accounts, get a cruise to a win. It, interestingly though, President Trump remains very, very popular in Georgia, roughly about 80% popular amongst Republicans. Uh, when polled though, however, said six in 10 Republicans in a, in a recent poll said that, that, that their, uh, the president's support of, of David Perdue made no difference at all in who they're gonna choose. So I, I think candidates matter. I think people thought that Brian Kemp did a good job as governor and they're going to send him back to a Republican nomination and probably back to being governor of Georgia once again. Ashley, I want to bring you in here because he's right. I've been in Georgia recently and the number of billboards I saw, it was almost like there was, it had to be a stamp or an endorsement of Trump. It was so um, you know, ubiquitous about having his presence felt. But Brian Kemp is really persona non grata to Donald Trump. And you know who's persona non grata maybe to Brian Kemp? Stacey Abrams. And interestingly enough, when you think about this potential rematch of things, I mean, as much as people are talking about don't relitigate a past election, these two are in an active litigation, not the, the personal people, but the idea of the litigation about their prior, you know, head-to-head matchup. Why is, the, why is that being looked at not in the same vein as the big lie phenomenon that Donald Trump has spoken about in Georgia? Well, I think what happened in Georgia in 2018 is drastically different than what Donald Trump uh, and his big lie around 2020. So Stacey Abrams knows she's not the governor of Georgia and she doesn't say she is the governor of Georgia. But what she does say is that voter suppression played a tremendous role in probably preventing her from winning that race in Georgia by, uh, if you remember, um, uh, signature matching and closing polling locations and even after polling locations closed, canvassing all the precincts to make sure every single vote was counted. So she wanted to ensure that every eligible voter who voted and who registered, they were able to cast their vote and their vote was counted. Trump, on the other hand, in 2020, he didn't want that. And he actually just emphasized that again in Pennsylvania when he told Dr. Oz, just say you won, don't make them count all the ballots. So he is the actual suppressor in 2020 when Stacey Abrams is the person who just wants every vote to be able to be counted. And I think that's the difference. David, you're shaking your head. You don't agree with that assessment. Tell me why. Well, listen, listen, Laura, I just think, you know, I'm not here to relitigate that that race either. I think what Brian Kemp did as Secretary of State is he cleaned up the voter rolls as is permissible over his tenure as Secretary of State. And listen, remember that 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 election. Democrats had a, a big wind at their backs, right? And if Stacey Abrams couldn't win then, she, she's facing a very, very strong headwind going in this fall. She, with, uh, you know, you look at President Biden's numbers, they're terrible. When Biden came to Georgia, Stacey Abrams was conveniently absent. She didn't participate in the, in the Biden presser there because she knows he's doing so poorly. So if she didn't fare well in, in the last race against, uh, against Governor Kemp, I, I don't suspect she's going to do much better this race. So you know, you can relitigate the, the, that, that case, which is going ongoing right now, as we know, in the court system. But the people are ultimately going to be the deciders of that litigation when they go to the when they go to the polling place. And I think they'll soundly return uh, Governor Kemp to the governor's mansion there in Georgia. Now, Ashley, it's, it's one thing you're talking about the idea of a, a sort of a, a tailwind helping. I mean, a tailwind's only as good as if you don't have a brick wall of suppression in front of you. I mean, either way, you're going to hit something at the end of it. But the idea of litigating the notions of a, your your point is that 
her cause was the notion of democratic principles in terms of one person, one vote counting. The big lie is premised on the notion that just get me a couple more votes here and I can declare victory. But why is that not, I mean, why why is it that um, Brian Kemp seems to be, of all the people at all the bars, all the people walking in the world, right? The Casablanca notion here. Why is it successful in Georgia that that's not hitting? What is it about what's happening in the electorate there that the big lie is not gaining traction for Purdue? Well, I think we also have to remember Purdue just lost in 2020. And 2020 was an extremely contested election in Georgia, and he wasn't able to pull it over the finish line, along with the president of um, the president, then Donald Trump. I also think that even though Brian Kemp is um, doesn't have Trump's endorsement, he definitely does things on an ideology that are very similar to Trump. He just pat or signed into law sweeping aggressive voter suppressive laws. Um, you remember Georgia was the state that they tried to make it a felony to pass out water to people standing in line to vote. He passed controversial uh, education policy around how you can discuss race in the classroom. He has passed or signed legislation that targeted transgender athletes in school. So he might not have the Trump flag waving at his rallies, but he definitely has tendencies that our former president has, and that could still resonate with the base. And mm. we can't hide the fact that Kemp already beat Stacey Abrams, which I think Governor uh, Georgia voters uh, take note to. It's it's true that that has happened. Well, we'll see going forward happens. We'll, we'll, we'll have more discussion. I just, I just want to point out. I wish I wish I could keep you talking. Go ahead, real quick, David. I, I was just going to point out there are two Democratic senators currently serving the United States Senate from Georgia. So I, mm -hmm. I don't, you know, you, 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 if you can have voter suppression, you know, it doesn't seem to affect the U.S. Senate races. So I'm kind of confused by that. And listen, Kemp's going to be the governor again because he's a good candidate and he's a good governor. Well, we'll see what happens in Georgia. Your predictions are all noted. Ashley Allison and David Urban, thank you. Thank you for watching. I'll be back Monday night. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.